Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. And today actually is the 3rd of June, 2021. Now we've been talking a great deal about the diavent ontology of aging as it relates to the immune system and to normal functioning of the operation of metabolic pathways in the body. Today, I want to go back and give you a global perspective on the neuroendocrine system. And in particular, I want to, first of all, discuss something about dietary aspects, nutritional utilization, so that we get a framework of the human system as it moves through various stages, not only in the level of increasing in age, but also in dietary intake and the basically the flow of carbon and then we'll superimpose on their hormonal regulation, and then we'll superimpose upon that the immune system. So I'll layer it on uh, from one, one uh, subsection to the next, and I hope to do that in three lectures. So let's take a look at this. Again, Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry is who you're listening to. So first of all, let's think about the disposition of glucose and protein amino acids and lipids during the well-fed state. So this is going to involve the gut. The gut will be taking in uh, carbohydrate, protein, and lipid. The glucose and the uh, amino acids that are broken down from the protein will move through the portal vein and enter the liver. Pancreas will be releasing insulin because you are in a well-fed state. So there'll be high levels of circulating glucose. The amino acids will then be utilized in the liver for protein synthesis. They'll also uh, be partially degraded to urea. And the glucose, of course, will move through the glycolytic pathway, make pyruvate, and pyruvate then through the uh, pyruvate hydrogenase and pyruvate carboxylase, and then through the TCA cycle, the citric acid, will be utilized, that carbon will be utilized for fatty acid synthesis. Glucose will also be um, polymerized to glycogen and stored in the liver. Not only that, but the glucose will be translocated or transported from the liver throughout the, regular, the rest of the circulatory system, make it to the brain, where glucose will be the primary fuel. And of course, the glucose will be completely oxidized and you'll make carbon dioxide and water in the process. Now, talking about the lipid, the lipid leaving from the gut will leave with chylomicron, chylomicron is eventually translocating to various locations, including the liver and the muscle tissue, and of course, depot visceral fat. Um, the chylomicrons will be leaving behind fatty acid in the form of triacylglycerol, and they'll be stored in those various suborgan systems and utilized. So muscle tissue can use lipid. Uh, of course, the adipose tissue will primarily store it. The fat that is uh, that is translocated into the liver, of course, will directly then be loaded onto very low-density lipoproteins. So besides the chylomicrons docking on their own receptors in the hepatic uh, tissue and then releasing their lipid content and then the reformulation of lipoproteins in the form of VLDL, taking some of the lipid back out and whatever lipid is synthesized from glucose to pyruvate to triacylglycerol will be leaving as VLDL. The VLDL will then traffic lipid back, of course, to the adipose tissue. 
also to the muscle tissue where you'll have intramuscular triacylglycerol deposition. Uh, and this will be moving primarily all, of course, through the lymphatics. Now, in terms of the red blood cells, another major uh, system we can talk about, um, the red blood cells are going to be using glucose primarily as a fuel, and they'll generate lactic acid. Lactic acid will be sent back to the liver, where it will, uh, through the lactodehydrogenase uh, uh, enzyme, synthesize pyruvate, as will amino acid degradation in the liver and pyruvate. Then again, all of that carbon in the well-fed state will be uh, used as synthesized triacylglycerol. And then again, some will be stored in the liver, but most of it will be translocated out via the lipoprotein pathway. So that's the well-fed state. Now, when you first start fasting, and you should be in a fasting state most of the time, um, of course, nothing's happening in the gut, so we don't need to worry about anything coming through there. Pancreas is going to start releasing from the alpha cells now of the pancreas, uh, glucagon. It'll move through the portal vein, it'll get, uh, and it'll, its function will then be universally used throughout circulation. The liver will be converting glycogen to glucose, and the glucose will still be uh, maintaining brain metabolism. So you go glucose all the way to carbon dioxide and water. Glucose will also be utilized by muscle tissue. Um, muscle tissue will, of course, convert the glucose via core cycle to lactic acid. Lactic acid will make it back to the liver, and you get some gluconeogenesis from that. Um, and, of course, the muscle tissue will also generate alanine. So the alanine cycle will also be used. Alanine will be converted to pyruvate, and then pyruvate through gluconeogenesis to make glucose as well. So it be primarily a gluconeogenic mode and glycogen phosphorylase. Adipose tissue will not be uh, involved in too much of this in the early fasting state. However, when you get to the full fasting level, many more things happen. Pancreas is still releasing from the alpha cells glucagon through the portal vein. Now, the gut requires the enterocytes to have some carbon activity so that they maintain integrity. So here, it's primarily glutaminolysis and then uh, conversion ultimately to alanine, so you generate an alanine cycle from the enterocytes of the gut, and that will uh, be translocated to the uh, liver, of course. The alanine will be used, uh, again, through pyruvate um, to make glucose. All the protein that's end up in the liver right now will, be start, uh, will start to be catabolized to amino acids, and you'll get amino acids converted to glucose. Uh, via various aspects of the intermediary metabolism. The lipid uh, adipose tissue visceral fat layer will then be, of course, translocating via HDL um, triacylglycerol. So fatty acids will make it to the liver where they'll be uh, generating ketone bodies. That's acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate. The triacylglycerol also will be broken down not just to fatty acids, but to glycerol. Glycerol will be converted to glucose. So you'll still be doing some gluconeogenesis in that fashion. Um, besides that, uh, lactic acid uh, will again be coming from the red blood cells, and that lactic acid will be utilized for gluconeogenesis, and the glucose will continue to, to serve some aspects of the central nervous system, but increasingly ketone bodies will be the carbon source for brain activity as it will throughout the system. This is in the a full fasting state. So that's a real brief overview of um, what happens in terms of uh, carbon utilization. Now, I want to move to 
the regulation of key enzyme activities as it relates to this. And again, we're moving fast because you've already heard um, basic biochemical lectures over the last couple of years in authentic biochemistry. And I'm not going to be giving those um, slow motion trafficked uh, lectures today. I'm, I'm doing a synopsis. But I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, I wanted to give you the idea of the well-fed initial fasting and full fasting state, because I want to remind you of carbon mobilization throughout the body. Now I'm going to talk about enzyme control. Remember that some proteins can be phosphorylated, and they are phosphorylated by protein kinases. And then the phosphorylated form of the enzyme is either activated or deactivated by that phosphorylation. And uh, to remove the phosphorylated form of the enzyme, you have a phosphoprotein phosphatase. So this is something that's going on intracellularly all the time to control the flux of carbon through metabolism. Now, let's go one level deeper. Let's talk about glucagon epinephrine stimulating glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, and at the same time, inhibiting or blocking glycolysis and lipogenesis in the liver. So when glucagon is secreted from the pancreas and epinephrine from the uh, uh, endocrine system, endocrine binds to, uh, uh, excuse me, epinephrine binds to its own receptor, glucagon to its own receptor uh, and the hepatocyte, both of which will activate an enzyme called adenylate cyclase, which of course will increase the concentration of cyclic AMP, which will then of course activate protein kinase A. There you go uh, with a first stage of enzyme phosphorylation. That enzyme phosphorylation in this state, right, will of course activate gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. At the same time, will block, because of the enzyme phosphorylation state, both the glycolytic pathway and lipogenic pathway. So this is now one level from that kinase cascade to explain to you how the liver can control in a blanket way, the frank uh, utilization of carbon. Now, there's also an activation of AMP kinase. Uh, again, this is in the liver, and AMP kinase shuts down ATP-requiring processes, and it stimulates ATP-producing processes. This can also, of course, happen in skeletal muscle. So um, when you get to this phase, either during the fasting state or when the muscle is functioning, increase in work, chemical work that is, work will increase uh, the uh, ATP hydrolysis and then that means ATP levels will drop. Also, when the muscle is fully functional, hypoxia will start to set in. The loss of ATP will increase the, uh, the amount relative concentration of AMP. AMP will then activate the AMP kinase. The AMP kinase will then uh, do enzyme phosphorylation. And in this instance, the enzyme phosphorylation will activate fatty acid beta oxidation and further activate glycolysis. However, the enzymes which are phosphorylated by AMP kinase cascade will then go on to block gluconeogenesis, protein synthesis, lipogenesis, and of course, besides fatty acids, also cholesterologenesis. Okay. So you get the idea now AMP kinase is functioning in a tailored uh, modality, which is in association with how we we're just describing the protein kinase. 
um, from the glucagon and epinephrine pathways. Now, in terms of gene transcription regulation uh, in the liver by glucagon back to the liver, glucagon binds its receptor. It turns on adenylate cyclase, increases cyclic AMP, protein kinase A activated, all that. But then protein kinase A activates CREB, which is the cyclic AMP response element binding protein. And the CREB will function on um, cis-acting regions, promoter regions of gluconeogenic genes on the CRE promoters, that's the cyclic AMP response element. At the same time, the CREB protein will block the same CRE promoter region where it activated the CRE gene through gluconeogenesis. It will deactivate the expression at the transcriptional level of lipogenic enzymes. So you'll get a decrease in lipogenesis from the protein kinase A system now from glucagon by its receptor in the hepatocyte. At the same time, the CREB will work through CRE, turning on glucogenic genes, increasing gluconeogenesis, okay? I know I'm moving quickly here, but I'm trying to, once again, I'm not trying, I think I'm doing a pretty good job here of putting you back into metabolic um, understanding, something that I know you feel terribly deficient because I haven't given you a lecture in a while. So that's why I wanted to come in with uh, full barrels. So here's another aspect of it. Let's talk about fatty acids. Fatty acids will activate the PPAR-alpha, that's proximal proliferator activated receptor alpha. Um, that particular uh, transcriptional regulation will turn on PPRE, that is proximal proliferator response elements, in the mito for mitochondrial uh, fatty acid oxidation genes. It will also turn on the PPRE promoter regions for peroxisomal fatty acid oxidation genes, because you're going to be oxidizing fatty acids in the mitochondria, which is your standard procedure, but also in the peroxisome. PPAR-alpha will also turn on ketogenesis genes. So besides having fatty acid oxidation, which of course will result in acetyl-CoA synthesis, you'll also be getting ketogenesis, which is going to utilize that acetyl-CoA. This is what fatty acids are used for. When you think about how PPR activation promotes transcription of fatty acid oxidation and ketogenesis, we're utilizing the PPRE and PPAR response elements at, uh, after transcriptional activation. Now, I want to turn your attention to a paper published in Immunological Research in April of last year. And this talks about, yes, the TOLAC receptor 2 mediated metabolic reprogramming, which participates in a polyene phosphatidylcholine-mediated inhibition of the M1 macrophage polarization. So I told you I'm going to start introducing multiple layers, and now we're into the immune system. Okay. Now, that same PPAR-alpha we just talked about, and remember what that was doing metabolically. PPAR-alpha was turning on fatty acid oxidation and ketogenesis, remember? Okay. PPAR-alpha transcriptionally also regulates besides the production of fatty acid oxidation genes, M1 pro-inflammatory macrophages, which work through the TLR2 receptor to promote glycolysis over beta oxidation and thus remain polarized as potent pro-inflammatory macrophages. So here's how PPAR-alpha works. When PPAR-alpha is activated by a novel, novel pharmacological agent called polyene phosphatidylcholine, 
that switches the polarization of the macrophage to an M2, which expresses the anti-inflammatory repertoire of genes. Thus, it appears that fatty acid versus glucose oxidation for bioenergetics actually pushes to the M2 polarization, thus decreasing the pro-inflammatory status encountered in diabetic and obese patients, okay? So now we're talking more and more about a disease. Now, inhibition of glycolysis with 2-diacylglycerol enhances the anti-inflammatory effect of that polyene PC, since this drives N2, macrophage 2 polarity, via the PPAR-alpha, as I mentioned, which is a ligand-activated, of course, transcriptional factor turning on lipid oxidation. So the inhibition of PPAR-alpha reduced the anti-inflammatory effect of this polyene, this uh, pharmaceutical, and that suggests that that compound, PPC, inhibits inflammation by reprogramming glucose and lipid metabolism. So it's a significantly downregulated expression of the sterile response element binding protein 1C occurred in a TLR2 double knockout. And that happens after exposure to PPC. That indicates a lack of dependence overall in that response when you've knocked out the TLR2 on TLR2 signaling, right? So there are two different modes of action here. One is through that sterile response element, apparently, that does not go through the TLR2 pathway. Okay. That's important to understand how the immune system now is linking up with the obesogenic state, which of course is still under the complete amplification processing of the transcription factors that we talked about just a few moments ago uh, in the well-fed state. Now, let's go back and discuss this. Let's talk about the, re about, uh, let's go back to um, normal hormonal control here. Let's talk about the regulation of gene transcription once again in the liver by both insulin and glucose in the well-fed state. Insulin will bind to its receptor, which is, of course, a kinase cascade system. And, and when it does so, it will turn on the SREBP1C transcriptional element, which I'll tell you in a minute what that will do. At the same time, it will block what's known as the forkhead transcription factor. And when it blocks that, because normally the forkhead transcription factor will actually activate insulin response element genes, which are glucogenic and fatty acid oxidation genes. So because you block the forkhead transcription factor, it no longer will activate um, gluconeogenesis or fatty acid oxidation. And because of that, you get a drop after insulin binding to the receptor in the liver, a drop in gluconeogenesis and a drop in fatty acid beta oxidation. Same time that SREBP1C element uh, remember, this is the sterile response element binding protein 1C, will bind to it, the transcriptional activator, to its SRE elements, that's the sterile response elements. These are lipogenic genes, and that will activate lipogenesis, okay, which means, of course, fatty acid synthesis and cholesterologenesis via the utilization of acetylcholine coa 
Glucose, however, also plays a role. There's a carbohydrate response element binding protein, which will turn on the carbohydrate response element, which is a promoter region also for lipogenic genes. So both insulin working through the SREBP and glucose directly through the CHREBP will turn on lipogenesis. Okay. So let's go back to a paper. This is published way back. I know it's ancient. 2012 from a journal called Molecular Neurodegeneration. Now, I want you to listen to this. Tumor necrosis factor and tumor necrosis factor receptor 1 dependent activation of sphingomyelinases, remember that's going to generate ceramide, triggers the production of ceramide and other downstream lipid metabolites that promote the activation of a caspase 8-3 signaling, decreased AKT activation, and ultimately mitochondrial membrane potential, and increases ER, that is neoplasmic reticulum, stress. Okay, now that's a really important issue now that you can consider. Now we're into tumor necrosis factor, of course, it's pro-inflammatory cytokine, we're talking about a trigger sphingomyelinases. It promotes the activation of caspase. It's decreasing an enzyme called AKT, which is part of the mTOR signaling. It also inhibits or decreases mitochondrial membrane potential, but it increases the, en the endoplasmic reticulum stress response. Okay? So how does that work? Ceramide actually causes an apoptosis of dopaminergic neuroblastoma. So either neutral sphingomyelinase or acid sphingomyelinase inhibition, which can be done pharmacologically, during TNF treatment, that's tumor necrosis factor treatment, affords a neuroprotection by blocking endoplasmic reticulum stress, loss of mitochondrial membrane potential caspase 3 activation and decreases in the AKT phosphorylation. So TNF treatment, tumor factor uh, alpha treatment, promotes generation of ceramide and, the, or I should say, plus the accumulation of several atypical deoxysphingoid bases, known as DSBs. And so the exposure of the dopaminergic neuroblastoma cells to the atypical deoxysphingoid bases, or DSBs, way down in the micromolar range, reduces cell viability and inhibits neurite outgrowth and branching in the primary dopaminergic neurons, suggesting that tumor necrosis factor alpha-induced de novo synthesis of the atypical DSBs, remember those are the deoxysphingoid bases, may be a, yet a secondary mechanism involved in mediating neurotoxicity, TNF, TNFR-dependent activation of sphingomyelinases, generating ceramide and sphingolipid species that ultimately promote degeneration and caspase-dependent, caspase-dependent, excuse me, cell death in the dopaminergic pathway uh, by causing cell death of those neurons, okay? I know that was a lot of information, but we're not done. I want to continue on here by increasing our understanding of obesity and cancer 
and how they confer uh, a pro-inflammatory and therefore dysfunctional metabolic state. So we have a few more minutes here. We're going to get back into this, okay? Told you about the TLR-mediated response. Now I want to tell you for a paper published now very recently in JBC um, in 2019, okay? Uh, JBC 2019, I put this in the show notes, of course. Um, High-fat diet and this uh, corticosteroid known as dexamethasone both induce steatosis, there's inflammation, um, fatty acid, fatty associated inflammation in the liver, increased hypertriacylglycerolemia and the production of ceramide all through this down, listen for it, the glucocorticoid receptor, because of course dexamethasone is a glucocorticoid. So TNF-alpha, as we know, induces acid sphingomyelinase and the ceramide generated triggers programmed cell death as we just went through with the previous paper and of course there's a cascade of pro-inflammatory responses all working through multiple receptors including the ones we mentioned tumor necrosis factor alpha receptor tnfr and that tlr2 which can also bind besides TNF-alpha, the TLR2, of course, won't bind that, but it will bind lipopolysaccharide or indeed endogenous host, obesogenically associated free fatty acid. I bet that wasn't a very familiar signature, right, for most people. So my paper published in 2018 in the Journal of Basic and Applied Sciences, we've learned the following. You get a serine palmitoyl-CoA uh, transferase reaction induced by TNF, nitric oxide, angiotensin, retinoic acid, obesity, certain chemotherapeutic agents such as danarubicin and etoposide, will generate the production via that SPT enzyme, three keto schwinganin, which will then be converted to schwinganin, which will be ultimately converted to dehydroceramide and then ceramide. This is a de novo pathway for ceramide biosynthesis. Now, ceramide from glucosyl ceramide synthase can be converted to glucosyl ceramide and then on to glycosphingolipids. But remember that the glucosyl ceramide can also be um, catabolized back via glucoserabinidase to ceramide, okay? So that's one other pathway to keep in mind. Now, the ceramide itself will work on membrane lap, uh, raft assembly with cholesterol, thus altering cytoplasmic membrane construction. Now, the ceramide itself also can be generated from sphingomyelinase, as we know, and the ceramide can be utilized in sphingomyelin synthase. Now, TNF, chemotherapeutic agents, heat, oxidative stress, and ischemia will all activate the sphingomyelinase, so you're going to be making more ceramide through all of these pathways I'm describing to you. That's the key feature here in the stress response. Ceramide, of course, also can be used in the ceramide kinase pathway to make ceramide 1-phosphate. And there's also the back reaction, ceramide phosphatase. Ceramide also is in um, equilibrium with sphingosine, 
So ceraminidase from sphingosine will make ceramide. Uh, um, of course, cer I mean, ceramide will make sphingosine after the ceraminidase reaction. Growth factors and cytokines will activate that enzyme. And you also get sphingosine 1-phosphate synthesized um, from sphingosine via the sphingosine kinase and the back reaction, sphingosine 1-phosphate phosphatase. So this gives you now a global understanding of ceramide metabolism within this um, entire, entire metabolic grid. So let's throw in now real quickly the toll-like receptor 2. It recognizes microbial structures, including fungal cell walls, as you know, lipoproteins from gram-negative, uh, lipoproteins for, uh, from gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria, peptidoglycan, mycobacterial lipoarabinomanan, GPI uh, anchors, as well as trypanosomes. The TLR2 receptor and TLR26 receptor uh, dimers will recognize unique bacterial antigens like triacylate lipopep lipopeptides and diacylate lipopeptides. All of that is going to be then activating NF-kappa-B, and you'll get pro-inflammatory cytokines. At the same time, you're going to get endosomal trafficking of the TLR2, TLR1, um, which are going to be interacting with the mid-88 TRAM uh, co-activator co proteins. And, you're going to, and from that, you're going, to go, you're going to activate the IRF1, IRF3, IRF7 pathway, and that'll turn on type 1 interferons. That's going to all be involved then in TLR2 signaling and activation of plasma membrane formation of the heterotrimer, heterodimers that I just talked about, those TLRs. All of that is associated with post-activation of the TLR2 um, pathway. So I'm going to stop there and say bye for now.